majority of uh, the men in C Company were just your average normal Americans. Uh, most of us were all middle income, middle class families. Uh, they were from all across the United States, Indiana. I was from Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'd say you had a good cross section of, of the total population of the United States at that point in time. A lot of times when we were first in country, we would go to person. Remember person. shooting them, to cutting their throats, to scalping them, to cutting off their hands, and cutting out their tongue. I did that. I just went. My mind just went. I didn't, wasn't the only one that did it. A lot of other people did it. I just killed, once I started, the, the training, the whole programming part of killing, it just came out. A lot of people were doing it. So I just followed suit. I just lost all sense of direction, of purpose. I just started killing any kind of way I could kill. It just came. I didn't know I had it in me. But like I said, after I killed the child, my whole mind just went. It was just round them up, put them in a circle, and put me, a couple more guys, and just put the M16 on automatic. The villages up and down the highway, Highway 1. You'd play with the kids in between pulling guard duty. And uh, one bridge in particular, there was a boy that always hung around up there with the GIs. Uh, we nicknamed him Six Fingers because he had an extra thumb. He had six fingers. But you'd always take him stuff, candy, pop, take pictures with him, you know, GIs with the with the kids. Uh, Just mowed him down. Just killed him. This is my life. This is my life. Even if I don't open a book, I see it in my nightmares. And if I never open this book, it's still there. I take 1,200 milligrams every four hours, four times a day of drugs and medication. And I have to take it. I need it. That's the only thing that held me somewhat stable. Not as nervous. I stay nervous, even with the medication. But if I don't take it, I go. I just go off. Just keep me out of control. It helps me. Because if I don't, I may do something to someone. Even though I still have a tendency to think that of hurting someone. But the medication helps me. It really helps me. But I had to take a lot. It, you got to meet a lot. A lot of people. It was mostly through booby traps and snipers. We never really got into a main conflict per se where you could see who was shooting at you and you can actually shoot back one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, booby traps was the main. My understanding was we were going in, we were going to get into one hell of a fight and we were going to kill out of it. And it's strong. Very strong. 
my little boy, playing in my grandmother's front yard here in Jackson, at, my, at his grandmother's house. And some teenagers across the street got into an argument. It was 14 and 15. And one went some ass when we got done. There wasn't going to be anybody left. When we went in there, we went in there with a purpose. And deep down, we felt what we were doing was right. But after it was over, everyone knew it was wrong. And the damage was already done. It was too late. The most disturbing thing I saw was one boy. And this was something. Oh, my God, a gun. And the one just ran in the direction where my little boy was playing. And he shot. He shot him in the head. I was in the house. And I came out and picked him up. But he was already dead. He was dying. So when I looked at him, his face looked like the same face of the child that I had killed. And I said, this is the punishment for me killing the people that I killed. And when the picture that I had, they had his funeral. The guy back from the funeral that night, that's the way it cracked. And I left it like that. How can you forgive? You know, I can't forgive myself for the things, even though I know it was something that I did and something that I was told to do. But how can I forgive that? I forgive. I can't. I live with it every day. It's easy for you to say, well, you go ahead with your life. But how can you go ahead with your life when this is holding you back? How can I can't put my mind to anything positive because it's always negative? Like I said, I tried suicide three times. Maybe the man was, the good Lord is not ready for me to go because I could have been dead with all the stuff I had taken and tried to. But eventually, it's not out of my mind. Like I'm sitting talking to you now, I can't promise that when you come again, I'll be here. Because before you came, I had to get out of the hospital for, from trying suicide for the third time. I still believe in him, but... I guess life, you live a life for a reason, for a purpose. Now, what that purpose is to have me still here, I don't know. But I did it. Now, what, what else can I tell you? It happened. You're looking at someone that did it. It can happen if you go to war. Those are the type of things will happen. It can happen to anyone. After that, you know, this, this is what haunts me from the whole, whole ordeal down there. It was a boy with his arms shot off, shot up, half half hanging on. And he just had this bewildered look in his face. And I'm like, what did I do? What's wrong? He was just, you know, it, it's hard to describe. I, sh I shot the boy, killed him. Train you, they program you. It can happen. It happens. That's reality. That's what war is. War is not something that I shoot at you, you shoot at me. Well, we take time out. You know, well, don't shoot me here, don't shoot me there. You, the war is war. It's killing all type of ways. And that's why we don't need another war. Well, I was a uh, division artillery chaplain, which meant essentially I went to every fire base and division area.
And the day before in July, I'd gone down to the landing zone, LZ, and I don't even remember the name of it, where Task Force Barker was setting up for a briefing. They were going to do a insertion or combat assault or whatever it took in Pinkville, which was, quite frankly, was a, it was the home of 48th at BC Battalion. And I went in there, and I was just, it was just a courtesy call. I had no business there. Chaplains do this. Just stopped in to say hello and meet the new commander. And while they were there, they had the uh, maps laid out on the board, and there was a major in there who was on the task force staff. And I remember he said, we're going in there, and if we get one round out of there, we're going to level it. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, I didn't really think we made war that way. And he looked at me, and he said, it's a tough war, chaplain. And... Uh, I left shortly after that and got my bird and went back to division headquarters. The understanding or the order that was given was to kill everybody in the village. Someone asked if that meant the women and children, and the order was everyone in the village, because those people that were in the village... I like to think of it more or less as a mercy killing because somebody else would have killed him in the end. How can you distinguish between the enemy? the good or the bad, all of them look the same. That's, that's why the war was so different. You know, you, you, it wasn't like Germans over here, or Japanese over there. They, were, they all look like North and the South. You know, so how can you tell? I was 19 when I went to Vietnam. Like the women, the kids, the old men were VC and they were Viet Cong themselves or they were sympathetic to the Viet Cong. They were not sympathetic to the South Vietnamese Army and they weren't sympathetic to the Americans. They weren't giving us any assistance. They weren't uh, helping us in the war effort whatsoever. It was quite clear that no one was to be spared in that village. As a professional soldier, I, was in, I had been taught to carry out the orders and at no time it ever crossed my line to uh, disobey or to refuse to carry out an order that was issued by the, my superiors. So if one of your men had refused to shoot, what would have happened to him? What would you have said to him? If, if one of my men had refused to shoot, uh, I shouted to think what had been the repercussions because it, it's hard to say now what I would have done looking back. Uh, at the time that it actually, if it had, when it happened, uh, he would have been in serious trouble. He could have faced court-martial. He could have been shot on the I was a rifleman specialist, fourth class. I was trained to kill, but the reality of killing someone is different from training and pulling the trigger. I knew the women and children was there, but for me to say that I was going to kill them, I didn't know I was going to do that until it happened. I didn't know I was going to kill anyone. I didn't want to kill anyone. I wasn't raised up to kill. Now, she was running with a back spot for refusing an order in face of the enemy, uh, in face of hostile fire. Uh, someone refuses to carry out an order, he's in trouble. At the time, we didn't realize it. Uh, there was no hostile fire at the time. They most definitely would have faced different disciplinary action had they refused to fire or kill or carry out the orders, yes. I feel that they were able to carry out the, the assigned task, uh, the orders, uh, that meant killing uh, small kids, killing women, because they were soldiers. They were trained that way. They was trained that when you get into combat, it's either you 
or the enemy. And they would, the people that were in that village, the women, the little kids, the old men, were all considered the enemy. I feel that we carry out the orders in a moral fashion and the orders of, of destroying the village, of killing the people in the village. I feel that we carried out our orders and I feel that we did not uh, violate any moral standard. But it wasn't right. I happened up on a group of uh, GIs surrounding these people. And one of the American GIs yelled out, hey, he's got a camera. So they kind of all dispersed just a little bit. And I came up on him and looking at the photograph, I noticed the one girl was kind of frantic and an older woman trying to protect a small child. And the older woman in front was just, you know, kind of pleading, trying to beg, you know, begging and that. And another person, that woman was buttoning her blouse and holding a small baby. Okay, I took the photograph. I thought they were gonna question the people. But just as soon as I turned and walked away, I heard firing. I looked around over the corner of my shoulder. I saw the people drop. I just kept on walking. At the time, it was just, you know, capturing a reaction. But when you look at it later on in life, you know now these people are dead. They were shot. Just kind of an eerie type feeling that you, that goes, you know, goes through your whole body. And you think back, could I have prevented this? How could I have prevented this? From a tree line. But she was carrying something. I didn't know if it was a weapon or what, but it was a woman. You know, I knew it was a woman. I didn't want to shoot a woman, but I was given an order to shoot. So I'm thinking that she had a weapon running. So when I shot and I turned over, it was a baby. You know, shot about four times, three or four times. And the bullet just went through and shot the baby too. You know, And I turned over and I saw the baby face where we're half gone. <clears throat> That's a question I still kind of, you know, ask myself today. During the mission, as it was going on, we kept just reconning around. Started seeing a lot of bodies. It didn't add up, you know, how people were getting killed and wounded. And we weren't receiving any fire. Just, you know, it didn't make sense. There was, there was too many casualties there. And how they were, the locations they were in, you know, figured out artillery couldn't do this because there were, you know, bodies in places the artillery didn't hit trying to get out of the village. When I did instruct my crew, my crew chief and gunner, you know, to open up on them if they open up on any more civilians, I don't know, I don't know how it felt if they would have opened up on them. But that particular day, I wouldn't have given it a second thought. It's, they were the enemy at that time, I guess. They were damn sure the enemy to the people on the ground. During flying around, uh, we came across a ditch. It had bodies in it, a lot of them. Women, kids, old men. I remember thought going through my mind, how, how did these people get in a ditch? And I finally thought about the uh, uh, Nazis, I guess, and marching everybody down to the ditch and blowing them away. Here we are supposed to be the good guys in the white hats. It upset me. As we were 
flying over it one time, we noticed, you know, some movement in it. And Andrada, who was my crew chief, uh, spotted a child moving around amongst, you know, the bodies that were in there. So we landed the aircraft next to the ditch and we got out of it. And my gunner, you know, stood on one side of the aircraft and I stood on the other. Andrada went down wading, you know, through the bodies and brought back up, you know, a little child about three years old. It was obvious how the people got in the ditch by then, I guess. So we got the, air, the child on board. And I just, just blinked. I just went. The training came to me, the programming to kill. And I just started killing. You didn't have to look. It was there. It was trying to get away. But it was just there. It wasn't hard to kill. It wasn't hard to find anyone to kill. That day in my life, I was personally responsible for killing between 20 and 25 people, about 25 people. And we were, you know, getting that child out of there. There was more we probably could have saved, but we you know, couldn't carry it. So we flew the child to Quangai Hospital, I believe it was, and dropped it off with a nun there. It was a very sober flight going over there, very quiet, trying to figure it out. I was looking at the kid, which I thought was a boy about four years old, three years old. I had a son at home, same age. I was thinking that it could be your kid. It's a quiet flight. Later found out in some investigations and hearings that it was actually a girl. You, know, you really couldn't tell. We checked arms or legs, you know. There's no bullet wounds. Landed the aircraft in between the American forces and the Vietnamese people in the bunker. Got out of the aircraft, had us get out of the aircraft with our weapons to cover him. And he went and had words with a lieutenant on the ground. He asked the lieutenant how he could get these people out of the bunker. The lieutenant said the only way he knew was with hand grenades. So when Warren Officer Thompson came back to the aircraft, he was, he was furious and he was desperate to get these people out of the bunker. He told us he was going over to the bunker himself to see if we could get them out. I don't even think he took a rifle with him. I think he was, besides a sidearm, he was relatively unarmed. He told us if the Americans were to open fire on these Vietnamese as he was getting them out of the bunker, that we should return fire on the Americans. Lieutenant Kelly ordered um, certain people to shoot these people, and uh, I was one of them, and I refused. And he told me that he was gonna have me a court-martial when we got back to base camp. And I told him what was on my mind at the time. Ordered me to shoot down innocent people, that's not an order. That's that's craziness to me, you know? And so I don't feel like I have to obey that. Looks and if you want a court martial me, you do that. If you can get away with it. I feel like it was it was horrible. You know, just a terrible thing to be going on. 
and American boys doing this, you know? And I feel like I'm a red blood American boy, just like any other rest person. From shooting them, to cutting their throats, to scalping them, to cutting off their hands, and cutting out their tongue, I did that. I just went. My mind just went. I didn't wasn't the only one that did it. A lot of other people did. I just killed once I started the, the training, the whole programming part of killing. It just came out. A lot of people were doing it. So I just followed suit. The guy that was there, you know, and uh, to see that I'm talking about black or white, you know, black and white guys doing this, you know, it didn't make any difference. I'm saying uh, it just seemed like a horrible thing. I'm talking we all came from the same place to me, you know, we all came from the same place. And I know uh, they all had to have the same values that I had somewhere along the line. Uh, if it's they didn't get it in school, they had to get it in religion, uh, church or someplace, you know, uh, if you didn't go to school, you know, you could pick it up from a stranger, you know, it's just simple, you know, but then to go and do something like this, it's, it's immoral to me, you know, that's just the way I feel about it. When I sat down with a friend who had been there three weeks after the massacre and we were telling each other war stories and we hadn't seen each other in three months and I said, what have you been doing? He said, what have you been doing? He said, oh man, did you hear what we did at Pinkville? I said, no, what'd you do at Pinkville? He said, we went in there and we killed everybody. I said, killed everybody? What do you mean? He said, we just shot them, lined them up and shot I just lost all sense of direction, of purpose. I just started killing any kind of way I could kill. It just came. I didn't know I had it in me. But like I said, after I killed the child, my whole mind just went. We just round them up. Put them in a circle. And put me, a couple more guys, and just put the M16 on automatic. Got them down, three, four, five hundred people. I don't know how many. And my immediate reaction was, you know, these no good sons of bitches. Look what they've gotten me into. Look what they've gotten us all into. They left me now with a choice to turn in my friends and be a part of this horrible crime. And I'm not going to be a part of this horrible crime. The only way to not be a part of a horrible crime is to discover the truth and to pursue it. Uh, and let the chips fall wherever they land. Um, and that's what I set out to do. When you murder a village of 500 people, or you know that a village of 500 people has been murdered in one afternoon, in one morning, Pretty tough to evade the reality of that and the implications of that. One of my friends, when he told me about it, said, you know, it was, it was this Nazi kind of thing. And that's exactly right. It was this Nazi kind of thing. We didn't go there to be Nazis. At least none of the people I, I knew went there to be Nazis. I didn't go there to be a Nazi. Just mowed them down. Just killed. This is my life. This is my life. Even if I don't open a book, I see it. In my nightmares. Anyway, if I never open this book, it's still there. I take 1,200 milligrams every four hours, four times a day. Of drugs and medication. These people 
were tortured by this. They, they uh, were kids, 18, 19 years old. Most of them had never been away from home before they went to the service. And they end up in Vietnam. And in a moment, in a moment, following orders, in a context in which they've been trained, prepared to follow orders, they do what they're told and they shouldn't have. And they look back a day later and realize, I have to take it, I need it. That's the only thing that held me somewhat stable. Not as nervous, I stay nervous, even with the medication. But if I don't take it, I go, I just go off. Just keep me under control, it helps me. Because if I don't, I may do something to someone. Even though I still have a tendency to think that of hurting someone, but the medication Helps me, really helps me. But I had to take a lot. But they probably made the biggest mistake of their life. There are only a few people who were in those circumstances who had the presence of mind and the strength of their own character that would see them through that circumstance. Most people didn't. And for most of them, even people that I, I, I personally just was stunned to discover that they'd made the wrong choice, they did. And they had to live with it. They have to live with it. And so do I, so do we all. I can uh, further say that I did not see any slaughter at Miley 4 that day, and uh, none was reported. Out of it. And it's strong. It's very strong. <clears throat> My little boy playing in my grandmother's front yard. Here in Jackson, at, my, at his grandmother's house. And there were some teenagers across the street got into an argument. It was 14 and 15. And one went to me. And I'll further state that I did not order any massacre at Miley 4. Based on the original documents that we received as a result of our investigations, it was a massacre. It was. Uh, a violation of all the rules of land warfare that I've ever known in my life because it was just cold-blooded killing of people who appeared to be defenseless civilians. All I can say is thank you all very much, each and every one of you that has supported me, and also those that are supporting the men still over in Vietnam and the United States Army. Thank you very much. If I have committed a crime, the only crime that I have committed is in judgment of my values. Apparently, I valued my troops' lives more than I did that of the enemy. When my troops were getting massacred and my- I got a gun. And Elvin just ran in the direction where my little boy was playing. And he shot, he shot him in the head. I was in the house, and I came out and picked him up, but he was already dead. He was dying. So when I looked at him, his face looked like the same face of the child that I had killed. And I said, this is the punishment for me killing the people that I killed. Called by an enemy I couldn't see, I couldn't feel, and I couldn't touch. But nobody and the military system ever described as anything other than communism. They didn't give it a race. 
They didn't give it a sex. They didn't give it an age. They never let me believe it was just a philosophy in a man's mind. That was my enemy out there. And when it became between me and that enemy, I had to value the lives of my troops. And I feel that is the only crime I have committed.